Sneak, my name is Nehal Bhatia and I'm a solutions architect at MongoDB. Stay tuned as Shane and I discuss and explore how to build sustainable and environmentally friendly architectures. This is the MongoDB podcast. My name is Shane McAllister and welcome to the show. We're grateful to have you join us for yet another episode. The environment and sustainability is not something that immediately springs to mind when we think about data. The cloud as a notion seems very abstracted from the reality that the cloud is merely somebody else's servers, somewhere else, always on and always available. The year-on-year massive reduction in the cost of storage and connectivity, however, does have a real-world consequence, and we should be mindful regardless of how we use resources. In this episode, I talk to Sneha Bhatia, a solutions architect with MongoDB, about designing environmentally sustainable architectures and the extent to which the IT industry contributes to global emissions. Spoiler alert, it's the same as the aviation industry and growing. We discuss on-premise versus the cloud, how developers can optimize the architecture of a database so it can be designed with sustainability in mind through appropriate provisioning, data shaping, indexing, queries and sharding, and lots more. So let's get started. So welcome to another MongoDB podcast. And today our guest is Snehal. And uh, Snehal is our solutions architect based in London. So Snehal, hello and welcome to the podcast. Hey, Shane. Thank you. Happy to be here. It's great to have you on board. I kind of I have seen your presentations on the subject of what we're going to talk about a few times, and I really was keen to get you on board. But before we dive into that, tell us a little bit about yourself, how your career path to date, and how you've ended up at MongoDB, and your day to day role in MongoDB. Of course. So I started out my journey in like computer science and, and generally the word of, world of technology and software with my academics. So I did a bachelor's in computer science and engineering, followed by a master's in computer science. And in all those time, all those kind of courses, what I started focusing a lot on were, was um, data oriented stuff. So um, did a couple of uh, machine learning projects um, at mm-hmm. an academic research level, AI projects and as part of that, what I started discovering a lot was that there's all these cool tech things going on, but then there's mm-hmm. a whole element of how it all affects humans and society as a whole. And that is, since then, that's always been a subject that's intrigued me. So I did a little bit of research on like the ethical kind of considerations of machine learning algorithms, of maybe having a, a wide-scaled IoT kind of connected mm-hmm, system mm-hmm. Um, around our cities in a world where everything becomes a connected object and, uh, you know, the impacts of security and privacy. And, you know, and, and lately I also came across, um, you know, certain other concerns that are like out there as a whole, mm-hmm, climate mm-hmm. being one of them. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really kind of always intrigued and passionate about these projects and I, I I really believe in making the world a better place for for the lack of a better phrase for that so um yeah that's 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 where like my journey started uh, in computing and software and also just in general um, how my interest in these topics came about and so I worked for uh, work before joining MongoDB as an implementation consultant for like insurance mm-hmm. softwares and yeah and since I've, I've been in MongoDB for almost two years now 
now, and I've been working as a solutions architect. So what that means in my day to day is that I work with our um, customers, our users, to help them, you know, find the most optimized way the the way to deploy and work with MongoDB and and its various offerings in a way that suits them and their needs because it is a very flexible mm-hmm. uh, and adaptable technology. So it does need a lot of expertise from that angle. So work collaboratively with with our customers too to you know bring that to life excellent so i mean i know you have a deep mongodb expertise but that's not why we're chatting today and and i first came across your presentation you did at mongodb world back in june in in 22 in new york all about designing environmentally sustainable architectures and it really piqued my interest because i think um you had some incredible stats there at the very beginning about the IT industry itself and the percentage of global emissions we currently admit that it's roughly the same as the aviation industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's uh, that's also like a conservative estimate. Wow, oh, I, I I did not know that we were kind of on on a par with that. That is something because. I think the aviation industry gets a bad rep for emissions, yeah. probably because it's very easy to understand. Fuel goes in, it gets burnt, mm. you travel somewhere. But we don't have the same understanding of emissions for IT. And I think it was 2.8% of global emissions is IT, but it could grow, right? Yeah, so it's estimated to go up to almost 23%, 24% by 2030. And so 2030 or 2030, why is that an important kind of like year for us? Mm -hmm. Is that, uh, you know, based on kind of a lot of like conventions and, and, um, and conferences and UN level facts and the Paris Agreement, if you've heard about it. What mm-hmm. they have defined in all those uh, agreements is that by 2030, we need to make sure that our global temperatures don't go beyond a total of two degrees of rise uh, as compared to what we had in the pre-industrial levels. Uh, so if that two degree kind of metric is breached, what mm-hmm. that would mean is essentially like, you know, we'll, we'll go beyond the tipping point of what our earth can handle and, and coming back from there would be a much harder challenge. So we'll start seeing natural calamities and disasters of the scale that may then be out of our control. And even the two degrees, like, you know, just like the mm-hmm. absolute maximum, the, the goal we're all trying to aim for here is to stay at the 1.5 degree level. So this all has to be done by 2030. And the breach projection right now is it's less than eight years because average global temperature has been growing year after year to, to an extent where like in eight years, if we keep going at the same, same rate, we're definitely bound to breach this. And I mean, I'm sure you and our audience here is aware the global temperature increase is caused by greenhouse gas emissions, which mm-hmm. is then caused in return by, you know, everything we do and the ICD industry or the information communications technology industry is a big contributor to that. It's not very far away, 2030. How are we doing? I know and think in your presentation that you gave on this, you had a link to the Climate Clock, an online website that was calculating where we were with this goal of the one and a half, two degrees. How are we doing? Are we on track? Are we off track? So I think that the studies show that 19 of the hottest years ever have occurred since 2000. Oh, wow. Okay. The expected breach, if we keep going, can be 
anywhere between four years from now to seven to eight years from now, Mm -hmm. if we go with the 1.5 degree target in mind. So really, we are today not in a great shape. But on the positive side of things, and as a solutions architect, I always like to think about solutions, is that uh, it's also estimated that you know the, the ICT industry has the power of reducing global emissions mm-hmm. by 45 degrees by uh, 2030, right? And that's not just by cutting down our own emissions and our own kind of like, you know, uh, making sure that the way we develop and design technology is done in a good manner is also by automating operations things that right now consume much more electricity and power in other industries so be that manufacturing be that construction be that you know even aviation so Mm -hmm. like the ict industry in general is bound to kind of like you know keep making improvements to have drive efficiencies in that space but on the flip side of it we can't be the reason for contribution of 23 percent of global greenhouse emissions. So that that's not going to give us the same because we, we're not balancing it out in that case, which is why while technology continues to be a, a big contributory factor to improvements in all other areas of life, uh, if we think about it from a sustainability perspective, it's also important to be conscious that it has a reverse effect uh, because we consume more and more resources and the way we develop technology might as well just have a, a negative impact. Yeah, and it's amazing because, you know, obviously our reliance on technology, our use of technical products, technical services is growing all of the time. And when it comes to the cloud and infrastructure, which we'll get to, I think the, you know, for certain people, not necessarily ourselves in the tech industry, but for certain people, they abstract away the notion of the cloud. They kind of go, everything's in the cloud. That's great. That's brilliant. I know it's all stored there. But, you know, that analogy has gone down so well that people fail to realize that at the end of the day, the cloud is still a physical item. <laughs> you know, there, there's a server, there's storage, there's, uh, you know, computers involved as well, too. So when it comes to data and, and data architecture, how can we play this part in, in helping to reduce the emissions, to reduce our greenhouse effect, etc., as well, too? So what, what are the best ways to go about that? Yeah, so I think I mean starting with the with the deployment aspect, right? Like you mentioned the cloud, but we also have around the world lots of organizations and big companies who are yet to even adopt any kind of cloud technologies because of like lack of knowledge or like fear or concern mm-hmm. of security and then they end up deploying in their own private data centers and or you know on premises solutions and so on and it has been shown that private data centers or like self hosted systems they can have up to um 84% more carbon emissions as compared to what wow. public cloud providers such as AWS or Google Cloud or Azure can do for us right and the reason for that is very simple is because these companies Uh, or these organizations, they are not in the business of building and maintaining data centers, right? Mm -hmm. They're in the business of providing the best of class service or technology products or software products in whichever industry they serve, right? So essentially that infrastructure, even though critical, it's not their main concern. So even if Mm -hmm. they would have the the know-how and the skills and the knowledge to make it more and more efficient, that will probably never make their priority list, right? So that's where these cloud providers such as AWS and Google Cloud and Azure, where they come in is like, this is their core business. This is their core kind of like area of research and development and and everything. So 
without going too much into everyone's statistics, like AWS, their studies show that they're 88% more energy efficient than Mm -hmm. on-premise cloud providers. And they all have like carbon neutrality pledges by 2030 or 2040. Google Cloud is already 100% powered by renewable energy. If we look at 100%. Wow. Yeah, that's the statistics that they have um, they have published on their own websites. And then, you know, Azure is kind of like aiming for 100% renewable energy by 2025 and also to be water positive and zero waste by 2030 because it's not just the energy that goes behind these data centers. Mm-hmm. It's the material that is used in uh, constructing the physical data centers. So the, the way sure. they make their bricks, the way they make their cement, the way they, they construct this... Uh, um, data center, the, the water stewardship behind it, and all of these things are like key factors in, in optimizing a, a data center. And, and these public cloud providers are doing investing heavily in making sure that they're always top of uh, their game. Excellent. So I suppose it seems to be the number one improvement you can make is if you happen to be have servers on premise or on site, if you can move to the cloud, then that's a drastic reduction in terms of your own emissions and a move towards sustainability. So MongoDB, gentle plug, allows you to store on on all the major cloud providers, AWS, GCP, and Azure as well too. So by going that route, Snihal, we are leveraging their expertise and their knowledge in, I suppose, how they go about their own optimization, their own cooling, the fact that they use renewable energy, et cetera. So that seems like a really, really good first step for anybody to take, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, there's two things I like to say here. So the first aspect is definitely like, you know, moving towards these managed infrastructures uh, that, you know, that make all their statistics mm-hmm. public and available and, and knowing that it's definitely, it's kind of like how, I don't know if I made this term up or I stole it from somewhere, but <laughs> I like to think of it as like sustainability of scale, uh, much like economies right. of yes. scale. So we think about economies of scale when we think about adopting managed services and so on, right? Because in that case, like they're putting in all this work and they can make it available to us for cheaper because they they can sell it essentially to millions of people like mm-hmm. or, you know, similarly, when you think about a data platform or database or, or any other service for that matter, right, you can think about how, you know, the optimization of that product or platform is all then taken care of by the company that's developing it. So in our case, for example, with with MongoDB Atlas, which is our fully managed cloud-based database as a service, we take care of all the technology that goes behind, you know, ensuring optimized backups and restores or ensuring optimized workload distribution and optimization, the database upgrades and patches that we apply automatically on Atlas instances and the security and the compliance that we maintain for the whole, because we run pen testing and we run like business continuity disaster recovery testing and all those kind of things we make developer tools available and so on we do all this effort once and then we've got thousands and millions of atlas deployments around the world all of these people leveraging all this testing and 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 development that we did uh, in their own deployments so they don't have to go and start developing tooling for scaling and for developing backups and and whatnot all they have to care about then and also invest resources and time and developer effort and uh, energy you know 
you know, mm-hmm. all those kind of things. It's just their application deployment. So the thing that's truly differentiating for them is what they're doing. And then we're doing all of the rest of the work once that can then be leveraged by millions of other organizations. So of course, one aspect of looking at at this is just like reduction of effort and the fact mm-hmm. that, you know, you don't have to worry about all this. But on the flip side, if you think about it, you know, you, you're saving months and months of developer time, effort, energy, resources True. they would consume, whatnot. The same logic kind of goes behind like adopting managed services such as Atlas or any other. It's just essentially sustainability of, of scale. I love that. I love the idea that, you know, that economies of scale, when we thinking about a data center, we can understand that we can, you know, it's tangible. There's a building Mm. there somewhere with associated cooling equipment, with associated hardware, etc. as well. And and that is very understandable and, and how they manage to leverage their experience there. But when we talk about applications, and there there are billions of applications globally, internal, external applications, et cetera, all needing roughly the same level of infrastructure. So what you're saying there is, you know, we take care of that. We can optimize for that. We can manage, as you say, the security and the compliance, et cetera, as well, too. So that in itself is also further reducing complexity, but also further reducing the need for replication. Yeah, and, and the need for uh, resources as well that, mm. that need to like make all this efficient. And also from our perspective, just like the data centers make their infrastructure as optimized as possible so that they can host more and more kind of like, you know, consumers on the same infrastructure, we, we want to make our data platform as optimized as possible so we can use the least amount of resources to service, mm-hmm. you know, most amount of people. So yeah, there's definitely, you know, all those aspects that that kind of add to the the value of a, a managed service when you think about reducing the overall um, environmental impact, the negative impact that that your application might have on the earth. And I mean, I think we talked about how uh, you know moving to the public cloud might be a first step if an organization isn't already there. But it's again, we can go into another level of granularity there where like each cloud provider has tens and, you know, if not hundred regions available. So you can sure. deploy on many other, many different regions and, and not all these regions are as sustainable as the others. Okay, so for example, in um, AWS, they have three carbon neutral regions right now. I think they're all in the US. So they're zero carbon regions, right? Right. And Google Cloud, they have some regions like in the Nordics, et cetera, where like it's all, all, all the time, like it's coming from, you know, fully renewable energy and same same with other cloud providers as well. So some regions, just by virtue of how energy is generated in, in those geographical regions, they mm-hmm. can either be powered by fully renewable energy or by the virtue of how those centers are designed. Uh, they can be carbon neutral and so on. So another level of optimization there after you know adoption of just going to the cloud is also being conscious about which regions you're deploying your applications on. Um, now, a lot of the okay, times... Because we have a choice, right? So MongoDB, last I looked, has about 90-odd regions or locations and, and choice between the three main cloud providers. So you need... Location is a concern, obviously, but keeping your data close to your users or close to your customers is, is super important, right? Yeah, absolutely. So we've got we've got support like Atlas can be deployed in over 95 regions, I think, across the three major cloud providers that we're discussing right now. And yeah, when you're selecting a region, the first 
concern would be like, you know, what is my late query latency like? Like, you know, wh- what are my ge- mm-hmm. geographical kind of data residency requirements? Like, am I following the laws or not? But then there's a lot of cases where that might not be super important, right? Maybe your application can tolerate a little bit more latency, or maybe, you know, you ha- you want to have your main transactional nodes of your database hosted in, in your main region, but then you also have like a very read heavy application and a lot of your users are just kind of sending queries for reads. So that's where mm-hmm. maybe you can decide to put read only nodes uh, that can be part of your, your main database cluster in regions that are more sustainable. Or similarly, you might have analytical load running on your database, right? Like maybe some kind of machine learning um, mm-hmm. algorithms mm-hmm. or some kind of like business intelligence sort of workload. So it might be possible for you to put an analytics node uh, which is, again, this concept of workload isolation that we have in Atlas, where you can have your transactional load and your analytical load running on the yes. same database cluster. So you can choose to deploy your analytical nodes, for example, in a region that is carbon neutral because those workloads are not latency uh, sensitive. And then it's okay if the, that reporting process runs for three hours or and you know returns results mm-hmm. in, in two minutes instead of five seconds or something like that. So being conscious about like you know your different workloads. And the fact that with Atlas, we have this data platform that gives you this flexibility to distinguish between these workloads, to deploy where you need. And even, for example, some applications might be heavy on analytics, but low on transactions. So you can choose to deploy bigger analytical nodes, so provision more resources and lesser to your main clusters, so being, being smart and optimized with that as well. It's fascinating. And I think, um, you know, we've discussed at length there about location and choice of hosting, etc. as well, too. But once we have chosen our database and, and our hosting and our location, the architecture of that database can also be designed with sustainability in mind. There's lots of optimization you can do with how that database operates and, and works in itself, correct? Yeah, so that's that's absolutely right. I think the there's this quote that that says like the greenest energy is the energy that we did not use in the first place, mm, right? I like it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So uh, so definitely, like once we have made all those considerations, there's lots of things we can do from an architecture perspective. So right now, it's it's been estimated that about forty percent of the instances around the world are sized at least one size larger than needed. Okay. Okay. The reason for that is because not all workloads are predictable. Sometimes, you know, you need to provision for the peaks that you might have. So if you have an e-commerce application, you're running like Black Friday sales days or something like mm-hmm. that, and you want to make sure that your application can can handle that, you might just end up running year round on that extra provision infrastructure just because it's, it's not easy to go up and down when you're managing it yourself. Um, so that's where, again, like a managed service such as MongoDB Atlas in, in this case comes in handy because we have feature of cluster auto scaling, right? Where your cluster mm-hmm. can, your database can scale up or down based on your workload uh, without causing any downtime, without causing any effect on your application. So, of course, it introduces all those operational efficiencies, but also then it reduces the amount of resources you're consuming to only just what you need. And this can be also taken one level further with our new, like not new anymore, uh, the the serverless instances. Yeah, yeah um, the serverless instances that that were released. Right, so that just takes that that elastic scaling to to a whole new level as well. 
So yeah, and, and and that brings in obviously you know MongoDB had tiers, and as you say, are you using that tier effectively? Have you over provisioned for that tier? And and there are many cases where you need to over provision, but perhaps what was the figure? Forty percent was over provisioned, I think. Um, yeah. You know, so you can go down a tier or indeed jump on our new serverless. Um, do we have any inkling of how many uh, have moved to serverless in MongoDB, or is there any other concerns about company or organization moving to serverless? Which again is, in my mind, like the cloud. You know, this notion mm. that there's nothing there, but serverless is not serverless. There's still a server. <laughs> there's still a computer. There's still uh, storage and data behind that as well too. But you need to get the true efficiencies there. You need more and more people to move to serverless because, you know, that in itself has overcapacity because you want people to move there, right? Yeah, no, exactly. So, uh, you know, in general, like a typical server is set to consume uh, around 15% of its total computing capacity uh, mm -hmm. while still consuming a lot of power, right? So if you have sure. a server up and running, even if you're not consuming it completely, you're still consuming the amount of power that it takes to, to run it, right? And that's where with serverless instances on the, on the back end, what it allows us to do is like host multiple of these workloads on the same server, hence kind mm -hmm. of like optimizing it. But I think the catch here is that the true power of, of serverless technology in terms of making it more environmental friendly is when it can be adopted at scale. So the way we can optimize it to the most is by making sure that more and more workloads are running on the same amount of infrastructure that we have provisioned, right? So mm -hmm. it's, it's it's easy to draw a parallel here to, for example, like e-readers such as Kindle. Uh, you know, it's, it's said that the amount of resources that go into manufacturing of a Kindle and, and, and you know, all the, all, the, all the stuff that it takes, unless you read at least 60 books on it, you are not cutting even the environmental damage it causes because oftentimes- Wow, we... I hadn't heard that. That's, <laughs> that's super interesting. Yeah, no, I, I also found that out. I, I myself am a proud owner of an e-reader and I, I would think <laughs> that, you know, I'm not, I'm not using paper books anymore. Like how nice, but- uh, Have but... you 60 books on it? Have you, have you got reached the limit of target of 60 books? I think I have, but I have a lot of friends who who haven't or who who are not as active readers, and and so if you if you take that analogy back, right? Unless it's a really good analogy, people yeah. are, are are using it. You're not you're not kind of achieving the full benefits of it. You're not making an impact like that. And and around sixty percent of the organizations around the world are yet to adopt serverless technologies, and the reason okay. for that is just educating the current kind of, you know, workforce on how to use and work with serverless or uh, the fact that the current existing integration testing frameworks and all those kind of like frameworks that we have for, you know, uh, making mm -hmm. sure everything is up and running correctly, they haven't integrated like serverless technologies in them or the fact that, you know, people are still concerned about like what kind of security control the serverless of instance course. can offer because, uh, you know, it's, it's not been adopted or tested out at scale yet. So there is a lot of hesitation on, on serverless adoption in general. So I think just kind of like getting up to speed with all the technical advancements and, and, and getting rid of like these old notions of how it's not secure or optimized mm -hmm. or whatnot would probably be uh, kind of like a, a step we all need to take in general. 
It's probably the same leap of faith that it took to go from on-premise and servers to cloud is probably needed to go to serverless then for the next step for many organizations. You mentioned testing there, and I know that the clients and the developers that we deal with, you know, they would have a development environment, a testing environment, and a production environment generally. And, you know, they go in fits and spurts of sporadic use, I suppose, is certainly the, the testing and the development environment. Do as it, do we need a database on all the time? Can it be paused to, you know, save on, on energy cost and, and help the environment? Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about it, most of the customers that I work with seem to kind of like not be using their non-production environments outside Mm -hmm. of work hours. So roughly that's almost 50% of the time that those environments are not put to use, but we still need to provision resources, right? We can't just spin up them up and down. That's where like, uh, you know, MongoDB Atlas has a very unique capability to like pause a database cluster on Mm. demand. So essentially it's on the click of a button or you can even like, you know, make a schedule for when you want to pause and unpause it by using Atlas triggers, which is part of our like developer platform. And it allows you to like just write custom kind of um, code and functionality to perform certain actions based on certain things. So, you know, if you if you do that, like in like about 44% of, of resources in general for any project are spent on non-compute resources on an average. And so... Um, wow, nearly half. Wow. Nearly half. So if, if you can pause... Um, using a functionality such as what Atlas provides, not only will you like, you know, save on costs, because in that case, all you're paying for is just what the disk uh, is mm-hmm. using because the data is still stored somewhere. So it's it's really a fraction, a very, very small fraction of, of the total cost. So it's not only going to result in a huge cost reduction, but it's also going to reduce the emissions that you have. And, and that's a great way of optimizing your overall consumption. Another aspect of optimizing I've heard you speak about, which was really interesting to me, I know within MongoDB here, we talk about the data access together should be stored together. How do you optimize for data access, queries, indexes, etc.? Could you give us some idea of kind of ways to think about that to make it again, more efficient, more performant, but ultimately more environmentally friendly as well? Yeah, so I know we've spent uh, kind of like a lot of our time today discussing about the architectural aspect, but this is another aspect that might kind of like fall maybe a little bit towards the developer side as well, uh, is actually just defining the data model. So uh, what MongoDB allows you to do is like, as you very rightly said, it lets you model your data based on how your application accesses it or how your application needs to use it. So if you if you compare it to like, you know, the, the format that we're all most familiar with, which is like mm-hmm. tables and you know rows and columns, a relational structure. That structure imposes a certain way of storing sure. data, right? Which means that your application then has to write workarounds to retrieve it in the way that it needs to use it, which then you know leads to lots of join intensive like uh, intensive operations such as database joins if you're familiar with it. it it leads to like less optimized queries that might end up you know you might need to parallelize them more because just because of how they are natively not 
as performant and so on. So so leveraging a flexible data model, such as the document model mm -hmm. of MongoDB can really help you model your data in a way that, that your, your most frequently run queries are optimized for and, and they can access it with much less resources and, and without the need for expensive operations such as joins that consume a lot of resources. And, and that's You'll probably read about this even in the in the you know because a big part of the sustainable mm -hmm. tech journey lies on the web front end side of things or the web side of things and there's like principles of sustainable web design that that are out there if you just Google it it will pop up that all talk about how having a more you know optimized data model is needed to to reduce the overall carbon emissions as well. Okay, you touched on it there briefly. You know, if I'm if I'm not sure, have I optimized my database? Um, if I'm not sure, you know, maybe I'm I'm dealing with something that's been legacy for a while, or maybe mm. I'm new to the role and I've come into a company and I'm looking at that. How can I monitor that? What sort of tools does MongoDB have to inform my decision as to whether I have optimized my data and my architecture appropriately, obviously for all of the things we care about, speed and resilience, but obviously uh, environmentally as well too. How, what information could I get? Yeah, so I think that the the key there is then that your it should be easy for you to retrieve that information, right? Which means that your database technology should expose all of those metrics to you. So with Atlas, for example, uh, we the data platform exposes over a hundred key performance indicators. A lot of these are in the form of like visual graphics and charts, and uh, most of these can be exported out. You can set alerts to it, so you can track things like storage and utilize and data transfer and compute and so on. And then, uh, you know, so, so, so the key here is to then understand how exactly do you want to analyze these things? So not just okay. independently, like you maybe when you're looking at performance and you're looking at like, you know, general operations, you'll probably look at, okay, this is what my RAM performance looks like. This is what my disk utilization looks like. But when mm -hmm. you start thinking about it in terms of sustainability, it's important to start thinking about these in relation to one another. So the mm -hmm. way to think about it would be that almost sustainability would become another one of your non-functional metrics or non-functional SLAs. So for example, you might have availability yes. defined, and you might have response time and quality of results and costs and, and, and so on. Um, so sustainability then becomes another non-functional mm -hmm. kind of metric for you that will then be used to, that, that we can then use all these metrics to study. So for example, you might have chosen a, a carbon neutral cloud region for your deployment, right? Let's say it's all based in the US. But if all of your users are based somewhere in Australia, and they're all sending like it's a very read heavy, like a Facebook like application that's millions of users and they're mm -hmm. all concentrated on another side of the world. They're going to be spending sending like so many frequent queries to this region in the US. And all of this is going to incur a lot of like network transfer uh, resources. So not only is that network transfer cost, but also the, the resources needed for all this network transfer, right? So you need to balance these metrics against one another, which is where it really becomes important to start defining these as your, especially, you know, when you're doing project planning and things like that, mm -hmm. uh, it needs to become as important as performance and cost and stuff like that. 
Yeah, I, I love that idea. I think that, you know, a sustainability metric would be of interest to different people with inside an organization. But as you say, at the moment, we're looking at, you know, performance metrics, and it needs to live alongside that, I think, ultimately. And in your talk, I remember you, I think you mentioned eco mode for applications. And I was really impressed with that concept because we are so used to the always on, always available, instant response, kind of instant Mm -hmm. activation, etc. And I think uh, going back to the earlier notion of the cloud, we don't think about it as a physical entity. I think if people were given that, and in your talk, you mentioned like you see it green icons associated with airfare and travel. And I think if we were given that option when we're signing up for some online service that, you know, how frequently do we want this? How important is it to us? And maybe there's an eco tier as well too, whereby it would suit both the requirements of the company itself to uh, sustain their eco credentials, but also for me as a conscious consumer of saying, well, look, I'm quite happy to pay for this service and and I might pay a little bit more for the more eco-friendly version or the more sustainable friendly version because the market needs to push companies in this direction as well too, right? Yeah, exactly. So it might just also be a case of like, you know, you say that I'm happy with the eco mode and I'm happy that, you know, mm-hmm. it'll take me uh, two seconds instead of one second for loading my data, right? So you might, as a user, be okay with the lower level of performance, uh, knowing that you are also then kind of like, you know, c- contributing to towards a better cause. Um, and, uh, you know, as an eco-friendly consumer of applications, you might choose to make that choice. So applications It'd can It'd be great to have that choice wouldn't it I, th- I think it's I, I know my kids uh, run their phones on low power mode but because for them running out of battery is is a key problem mm-hmm. they don't yeah. need you know their emails retrieved automatically you know every 30 mm-hmm. seconds or so or they don't need necessarily the notifications to come through except for some of their favorite apps <laughs> which constantly yeah. annoy them but you know they turn on low <laughs> power mode because in their mind the most important parameter of their mobile device is the longevity of the battery. I think if we take that and flip it, um, I think it'd be really interesting to see, especially some of the larger consumer or B2C companies put forward those type of plans. If you have a, excuse me, a subscription, you could opt for something that is you know, more eco-friendly uh, on the environment in terms of what it does and how it operates, et cetera, as well, too. So, Going back to the question of, you know, I I want to know is my database better. Say I'm running a web application or a site or something like that. How could I know? And maybe it's not on MongoDB yet. How do I know if that is eco-friendly? Are there online tools? Where could I go to learn more? What else could I do? Yeah, there's there's definitely online tools available, and they a lot of them make their methodology available as well. So there's like this website called websitecarbon.com there's also this website called digitalbeacon.co and they essentially kind of like tell you how much carbon or energy a certain website is generating and what that can compare to in your day-to-day life and so on so we definitely have that stuff but we also what we have then is like uh, the green web foundation and climateaction.tech and these are or principles.green that are the web Mm -hmm. programming green principles and these are all organizations and associations working together and to find more and more like uh, efficient ways of of making the tech world um, more green if I can say that 
Excellent. And and we, we I'll follow up with you and I'll get links to those websites and we'll add them into the show notes of this podcast. So if anybody wants to check those out for themselves as well too, we'll also add a link back to that presentation that you did uh, at World um, so people can go through that. And I know that you can continue to do that presentation and expand on it all the time. And it's important maybe that if we take the best parts of MongoDB world and we travel it around the world for want of a better word. So we have MongoDB locals and they are coming to hopefully a city near you. We have done Frankfurt recently, but we we have Dallas and uh, London and others coming up as well too. So go to mongodb.com forward slash events to see what's happening there as well too. For me, this has been super eye-opening. Uh, I've learned a ton, and, and I kind of will try to play that conscious part in understanding, is there anything else that is, you know, at the beginning you said the move to the cloud is probably the biggest thing anyone who's still on-premise can do with their servers. Is there anything else that you should be thinking? And I suppose, like any movement, if we start asking the correct questions of our organization, of our business, of our infrastructure, then hopefully we will create that shift towards something that is more sustainable and more environmentally friendly. And I know inside here in MongoDB, that's certainly something that we're trying to look at all the time. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that that one thing that really stands out for me in this this case is like, usually, like when we in life outside of the tech world, when we try to make more sustainable choices or, you know, Mm -hmm. greener choices, sometimes it can be much more expensive or much more inconvenient, or, you know, it might not be the easiest thing to do. But in the world of tech, it's essentially uh, very interrelated to any, everything we're trying to do anyway. We're anyway trying to reduce the amount of resources we use because that optimizes for cost. Uh, we anyway trying to make our queries more efficient and our data model more efficient because that improves performance and that in turn reduces the amount of resources it consumes and so on. So what, what that kind of means is that making the more sustainable choice in this case is actually the easier and the better option. Like it's not something that's extremely hard. It's not something that's going to have massive negative consequences or be of you know very much more difficulty. So making the sustainable choices is anyway what we all are striving towards in the world of tech. So it really we are really in a unique position of advantage to 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 make the most of this and and make sure that we do the best for the environment and and there's lots of studies out there that are showing that the businesses uh, that are likely to to do well in the future what, what they're calling them are are the twin transformers and these businesses okay. are going to find themselves at the intersection of of digital technologies and sustainability and and these are kind of like studies out there saying businesses mm-hmm. that will adopt more sustainable kind of approaches will be the ones that will actually succeed in the long run so we do have a lot of incentives for doing this, um, even outside of just making the right choices, right? But given the fact that we're running against such a strong timeline, I would say that sustainability by itself is enough to, to justify all these efforts. Yeah, definitely. So you're, I get you there. It's, it's not an either or choice. It's not a binary choice. Essentially, most of the time when you're 
particularly when it comes to data architecture, uh, sustainability goes hand in hand with performance and responsiveness. As you said in your example earlier, you know, there is no point querying a database that's in the US if the majority of your customers are in India, for example. And I really love uh, that idea that, you know, it is a win-win for everybody and that sustainability should be on top of your thinking with availability, with response times, with performance as well too. And it just needs to be a metric, right? That's it. It should be in your dashboards as another metric of how sustainable is your architecture. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, this has been fascinating, fascinating. And we could probably go on a lot longer on this too. But uh, I, I know we, we, we'd certainly get another episode out of you, no doubt, uh, in the months to come. Have you anything further to add or any other pointers for our listeners who'd like to learn more about this or how they go about looking at kind of sustainable architectures? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we talked about a lot of things from an architecture perspective. I think there's other things you can think about, such as leveraging in, if you're an Atlas user, we have something called online archive, which is a, a mm-hmm. essentially a cheaper, but also more optimized storage solution because it can store tons of data. Well, tons is not a very scientific word, but lots of data <laughs> um, in, in using lesser resources. So if you have data that you don't access very frequently, but you need to keep it, you know, you can consider automatically it to an online archive kind of solution. Um, you can start thinking about, um, you know, optimizing using the right indexes, optimizing for your query patterns. Also, uh, at the end of the day, thinking about how your software is impacting the end devices, because if you're running a lot of like spiky workloads and there's a lot of peaks in your workload, sometimes it can't be avoided, but sometimes it can. If you can spread that out, mm-hmm. it would ultimately lead to less impact on the physical hardware that's running it. So so there's really a lot you can consider there. So the bits we discussed today are just the tip of the iceberg, if I if I may say that. I, I can well imagine that. And, and I certainly think there's a lot more to come in this. I know where I'm based in Ireland, uh, we have a, a lot of data centers. All of the major providers are here. But there is a, particularly with the increase that we're seeing now in energy costs and the energy crisis that we have, there's a lot of concern that the data centers here are using, I think it was 28, 29% of the country's generation uh, capacity. Uh, and that's a concern too. And and I think like anything in the environmental space, it needs kind of the amalgamation of consumer concern, pressure, technology, and also then, you know, some leading lights to lead the way. So hopefully we will get to the point where we see that kind of eco eco symbol beside the digital services that you're buying and not just your air flight. But Snehal, this has been absolutely eye-opening and superb. And uh, I will certainly try and get you back in the months to come to elaborate on some of this. For anybody who wants to know more, we will have links in our show notes. Um, Please check those out. Um, But Snehal, this has been superb. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This was very fun. Wow, what a fascinating conversation with Snehal, and plenty to think about, regardless of how much or how little data you store. Of course, with MongoDB Atlas Serverless, which can meet the needs of any workload pattern, and you only pay for your consumption, you can get a small head start in having a sustainable architecture. Many thanks to Snehal for joining me. We are always looking for guests on the MongoDB podcast, people with interesting stories to tell in the world of software development and data, So if you feel you can contribute, do get in touch at podcast at mongodb.com and we'd love to hear from you. Speaking of interacting, 
During November and December, we have dot .local events and MongoDB days in many cities globally. Too many to mention, but if interested, you can find out more at mongodb.com forward slash events. And the best part? All of the events are free to attend. So do check out that link to see if there's one near you. And remember to check out the show notes for further links to any of the sites mentioned in my chat with Snehal. Thanks again for listening. We really do appreciate it. If you did enjoy this episode and by any chance have not done so already, please do leave us a rating and possibly even a review on whatever podcast platform you use. It really does help us a lot and we very much appreciate it. So from me, Shane McAllister, and the rest of the podcast team, until next time, do take care and thanks for listening.